Okay, guys, I'm excited to introduce you all to Jack L. High. He is here with me today on the podcast, and Jack is a writer of nonfiction books, long-form narratives, podcasts, and the monthly Damn History newsletter for writers and readers of popular history. He has written about history, medicine, science, crime, and anything else that hooks him. His newest book is a true crime book titled The Lost Brothers, and that's what I really want to dive into him into with him today. He has also written books titled The Nazi and the Psychiatrist, Nonstop, A Turbulent History of Northwest Airlines, and The Lobotomist, A Maverick Medical Genius, and His Tragic Quest to Rid the World of Mental Illness. So Jack, I am super excited to have you here with us today and talk to me about your dive into true crime writing and kind of everything else you've done. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me here. This is exciting to be here with you. Um, I have been writing about crime in various forms and in various media and formats uh, Mm -hmm. for a long time, for many years. Um, I've done uh, articles about serial killers. I did an article a while back about a very early American serial killer named Harry Hayward, who was active in Minneapolis, which is, happens to be where I live. Okay. And I've done, I've done other um, stories about crime. Uh, uh, two of my books are related to crime. Um, the one you mentioned first, The Nazi and the Psychiatrist, is about the, uh, German, the top German officials and uh, military leaders who were in the first uh, international war crimes tr- tribunal after World War II. And uh, the book focuses on the U.S. Army psychiatrist who worked, who worked with them and treated them and evaluated them. And then, as you mentioned, um, I have more recently done a book called The Lost Brothers, a family's decades-long um uh, family's decades-long search, uh-huh. and um, so I've been interested in writing about crime for many years, and mm-hmm. I like it because there are there are questions that come up with crimes. Um, of course, who did it? If that's right. if that's not immediately known, um, and then what happened? And then what happened in the, uh, to the people left behind? If if it was a murder. And that was especially of interest to me in The Lost Brothers. And I also write about other topics related to history, um, medicine, and science. Yeah, I was going to ask before we dove into The Lost Brothers stuff about the lobotomist book you have. That's one of your like most popular books, is it? I just, I just saw it a lot on there. And is it... It is. Is it... Does it some what have it seems like kind of a dangerous mindset to you know rid the world of mental illness I guess like I don't know if that's what it is or if it's more about medicine like how how does that book go well there is a lot about the story of the development of lobotomy that rings a lot of alarm bells for us Mm -hmm. today and um but it's, it was important, and one thing that I wanted to do in this book 
was set the development of lobotomy and the work of its main developer and promoter, Dr. Walter Freeman, an American neurologist and psychiatrist, in context, in the context of what was happening in the treatment of mental illness starting in the 1920s when he began practicing medicine and then going all the way through the late 1960s when he stopped practicing medicine Mm -hmm. and retired. And a lot happened during those decades, um, but the but it is uh, the lobotomist is a deep dive into uh, what was perceived at the time as a terrible crisis uh, in American medicine, which was the lack of effective treatments for people suffering with mental illness, okay. and the and the advent of w- this one particular treatment, which was very drastic, about as invasive as you can get, and why, trying to understand why uh, it became a mainstream treatment for a number of years. So th- uh-huh. that that's what was the genesis of that book. Yeah, very cool. That sounds so interesting. And then like you mentioned, you mentioned the Nazi and the psychiatrist, and that's cool. That So it's a psychiatrist out of the U.S. that was then, therefore, what, working with the Nazis during World War II? No, he was not working with the Nazis. He was working with the international court that okay. was trying the Nazi leaders uh, on war crimes. And oh, his, he was okay. evaluating them to determine whether they were mentally fit to, to be tried. And then beyond that, he developed his own project mm-hmm. to try and find out what made them tick and whether there was what he called a Nazi virus um, using that term figuratively, uh-huh. to th- that made them do c- commit the horrendous crimes that they had committed, and to authorize others to do that. Did they have any psychiatric disorders in common? Was oh. what uh, the psychiatrist was trying to determine. That's very cool. That sounds like he was doing good work. That book sounds so interesting. I I would love to read that. So. Going into the Lost Brothers, like you said, it's the story of a family's decade-long search, and it's for three missing children, which are the Klein brothers. They went missing in Minneapolis, so again, that's where you're from, right? And that was back in 1952. And I read on your site that it's one of the country's oldest active missing child investigations. So how did you first come across this case? Had you always heard about it being in Minneapolis? No. Um, in fact, um, until the point that I wrote the book, it was not a well-known case mm-hmm. at all. Um, I only found out about it um, about 35 years after the fact. So this would have been in the mid-1990s. Uh-huh. Um, when I was reading the Sunday paper one, one morning and noticed an ad in the newspaper um, placed there by the parents of the Klein, missing oh. Klein brothers saying, we are searching for information on our sons, uh, Kenny, David, and Danny Klein, um, who disappeared from, Fair, uh, from Farview Park in Minneapolis in 1951. And if you have any information, please call this number. And it listed their phone number. And until then, I'd never heard about this case, you know, much less the fact that three little boys, um, age nine, 
and uh, excuse me, aged eight and six and four, oh. um, had had all disappeared mm-hmm. at once on a single Saturday afternoon when they went off to play at a park. Yeah, and so um, I called the number because I was writing a lot of magazine pieces at the time, and I th- thought it might make an intriguing story. And I spoke with Mrs. Betty Klein and heard the story from her, and she invited me to um, drive to her farmhouse. By this time, they were no longer living in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. but were living in a smaller town outside of the Twin Cities. Okay. And, uh, and so I met her and her husband, Ken, and they told me the whole story, and I was just, um, uh, I just fell down that rabbit hole from yes. that moment on and wrote a story about it for um, a regional magazine, but continued to be in contact with the family. Mm-hmm. And um, about uh, eight years ago now, the case was taken up once again on their own time by a pair of uh, sheriff's deputies oh, cool. um, in, in the county where the clients were now living. Okay. And um, and they did great work, and it became a revived story, and that's what made me decide to uh, write about it again, yeah. eventually, in book form. Well, I think that's really cool because, like, with it being revived and it also being a case that's not very well known, your book is bringing light to that and honestly may have, you know— an impact on people getting the knowledge and knowing that like this case is open if you have information like let them know and so I think that's really cool work that you're doing now that's crazy it just caught your eye in the newspaper because you said that was in the 1990s so was that like that was many years if they went missing in 1951 that's what 40 years down the road their parents are still looking for them that's heartbreaking right and that is a large part of what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it, it, it does cover, of course, um, the circumstances under which the brothers disappeared mm-hmm. and the, uh, the police work that was done at the time in 1951, which was uh, shockingly inadequate and small. The police mm-hmm. dropped the case after five days of an investigation and wow. never picked it up again. Um, but it, it, but much of the book is also about the parents and why they kept looking um, until their deaths. Uh, both of both Mr. and Mrs. Klein died about fifteen years ago, oh. and and why the case is still alive in the minds of their siblings. There were other Klein children okay. uh, who were not who, they were not even born when this happened. There was one un- older brother who was born when this happened, oh and. Um, and the effect that all this has had on them for the um, for all of them, it's really been a, the disappearance of those brothers has been a presence throughout their entire lives. And of course, the the brothers themselves would be pushing eighty years old, all of them. Wow, now. yeah, and that is that's really one of the devastating things about true crime and missing and murdered people is that there's more than just victims within the people who were targeted that victim effect ripples like you said through the family and even through generations where it like very much affects the kids the brothers the sisters you know like that there are so many victims in these violent crimes if that's what 
happened with the Klein brothers. I mean, it seems obviously very suspicious that something terrible did happen with three of them all going missing at the same time. But talking with the family and getting into their feelings up, you know, upfront and personal and close to it. Was that really hard on you? Was it hard to see what they were going through? Like, how did that affect you? It was difficult for me because um, at the time that I was working, um, beginning my work on the book and several years of research beyond my magazine article, um, took place before the book was published. I had young children myself. Myself, they're um, both. I have two daughters who are both in their twenties now, mm-hmm. but uh, they were much younger then. And uh, and I was thinking all the time, what it, would it be like for them to go out one Saturday afternoon and not ever come back, and not only that, uh, not ever have any hint what had happened to them and to be confronted with a police investigation that was completely inadequate. Um, At one point, one of the um, investigating police officers told Mrs. Klein that she should forget about her sons and have more children. Wow. um, I would be mad. Right. Uh, Well, she never forgot that, and it embittered her against the the police um, investigators. Yeah, and unfortunately, that is what happens when the police don't do a good job on a case. And it's sad because we hear that all the time. Like, yes, of course, there's cases that they do an amazing job at and they kill it at. But there's so many cases where the ball is really dropped. And just like even just the insensitivity of him saying that shows that he didn't care that much about finding her kids. To tell a mom that they should forget about it and have more kids, I mean... That was three out of what the four kids she had at the time. So she went from being a mother of four to being a mother of one living child. That is devastating. And it suggested to her that her sons were replaceable and Mm -hmm. that it really didn't matter who they were, uh, that there would be more to come later who would be completely adequate replacements for the missing boys. So... um, so the, the the Kleins, Mr. and Mrs. Klein, uh, in all of the searching they did in the decades after their sons disappeared, tried all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They tried psychics. Uh, they even tried a talking horse at uh, one point um, uh-huh. uh, to try and get some clues. And they Anything. wrote letters. T- yeah, they, they were desperate. And they... Uh, had an artist do age progression illustrations, portraits of the boys, put those onto posters that they plastered all over truck stops around the United States. They did some DNA testing of some men, who of course by this time were middle-aged men, who thought they might be one of the missing brothers in two cases, and uh, neither of those panned out. And yet, they were, um, I would say, optimistic people. Yeah. They, uh, they were inspiring people, too, and they never lost hope. And that was one of the benefits for me in writing about this case, was to see that for, for Mr. and Mrs. Klein, it was not all despair and, um, and horribleness. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were able to um, take this terrible thing that had happened to their family and figure out a way to live with it. 
And yeah. that was inspiring. Yeah. And they like kept doing the work all their life. So it's actually very inspiring that they never stopped looking for or thinking about those three boys until the day that they passed away, unfortunately. And I, I feel the same. I have two daughters. I have one that's five, almost six, and one that's one. And like you said, having... I think about this all the time because I'm in this world, right? I talk about these things all the time. I do talk about kids' cases because, you know, they have to be talked about. You you have to know what's going on in the world to be aware. And, you know, they deserve justice in their cases. And that's why you're talking about it. But, man, it is hard as a parent, like you said, thinking about your own kids and just wondering how that would be. I I think all of it would be horrible knowing, you know, something tragic happened to your kid and knowing what happened, that'd be absolutely devastating. I'm not sure how I would get over it, but them being missing and never knowing that would drive a mother, a parent, anyone who loved these boys crazy. And you just never absolutely. know. And this was a tragedy that unfortunately was not unique to one family. Uh, that in that era, 1950s, 1960s, um, police investigative technique was uh, not very well developed. Of no. course, they had no, no means of DNA testing uh, at that time. And there, I learned there were a lot of uh, children who, miss, who went missing during those years who were never found. And there are uh, not often three brothers, but... Um, there are a lot of families that were struck with this kind of tragedy and they disappeared. The families themselves disappeared from public attention. And even with three boys missing, the Kleins disappeared from public attention yep. and had to just keep going on their own reserves, reserves of strength. Yes. And I'm so glad you said that because I hear all the time like, oh, we can we just can't let our kids do this in today's world. Like today's world is so dangerous, all this stuff. I think people don't realize that violent crime has actually gone down in today's world. There were more crimes, violent crimes, murders, missing kids back then when investigations weren't done, you know, very well. They didn't have very many resources. When there's no cameras, no cell phones, all of that stuff, there were actually tons of violent crime happening, crimes against kids happening. People just weren't aware. We're just far more aware today because we have the technology to spread these stories far and wide. So people do like back then it was dangerous to have, you know, your kids go out, but nobody knew that. No one realized that people, I mean, for a long time, people didn't even realize like what a pedophile was that came like in the late, you know, in like 1970s, 1980s, people started talking about that stuff. And it was very shocking for people to realize that's a thing. So like you said, there were a ton of missing cases back then. I think there's a extra layer of tragedy to this story that you're telling about the Klein brothers being that it's three kids from one family. That is like yes. hard for me to wrap my mind around. 
and the hole that it made in the family. One of the family members most deeply affected was the older brother I mentioned, oh, yeah. um, who, who was um, nine years old when this happened. And he took it very hard because yeah. on the day his brothers disappeared, he was supposed to go with them to the park. But mm-hmm. instead, he stayed home for a little while to, to do a, a project he ha- had at home, a project to repair a knife sheath that he had. He wanted to do that first, and he told his brothers he would meet them at the park at the tree where they always met. Um, uh-huh. And so he, he did his work at home, went to the tree, and nobody was there. Uh, he's, he looked around the entire park. It's a large park still in use, very beautiful in Minneapolis, and um, didn't find anyone. And so that's when he was the first person to notice that his brothers were missing. And this affected him for the rest of his life. He's, uh, Gordy is still alive. And uh, he, he thinks about it every day. And yeah. um, one, thing, one thing that I did in the course of researching the book was to talk to him about what the um, disappearance of his brothers meant to him and how long it took for him to even come close to getting over um, this, uh, I would call it a crime, very likely a crime, yeah. that he believed was partly his fault. Oh, and that is that is heartbreaking because he's dealing with like survivor's guilt almost because had he been with his brothers, he very likely would also be gone right now. Like it, it it's almost a blessing for his parents that he stayed home, that they didn't lose all of their children. I mean, that's a very small, you know, small little light to look at it with. But I just covered a story, a case of these serial killers over in England a few weeks ago, we did a four-part series on it, and that happened in one of those cases where the older brother was supposed to go with his sister to the fairgrounds, and he didn't go. He was sick, and he struggled his whole life, like you said, just wondering what would have happened if he was there. Could he have saved them? Like, could he have brought his sister home? And they just feel this guilt that they shouldn't feel because, of course, it's not their fault. I mean, you said he's nine years old. Like, I can't imagine a nine-year-old losing all of his little siblings and that and the you said one of them was eight right so they I'm assuming they were very close yes he was close with his brothers um eight six and four and uh Gordy believe believes still to this day that had he gone with them to the park he could have prevented, or he, or he's certain mm-hmm. he would have prevented whatever happened to them. He feels um, like he because could save them. He does, yeah, because he saw himself as the guardian, the mm-hmm. older brother, the guardian of the others, and um, and that's why he has been very hard on himself. Yeah. So it was important for me to get his um, participation and cooperation in this because. His story is so much, uh, is so big a part of the family story. There's his parents' story, then there's Gordy's story, and then there's the story of all the siblings who were born afterwards, and that's a different story. Yeah. They were affected too. Um, so it's a complicated, it's a complicated weave of stories. That's one yeah. of the things that appeal to me so much about the Lost Brothers. Everyone has these like different perspectives because, like you said, 
his parents, of course, they have their, this is their children, the older brother who was supposed to be there. And then it sounds like essentially he's kind of the one who even discovered they were missing when he goes to the park and finds they're not there. That's another layer of guilt. Like he's the first one to initially realize something's wrong. And then of course the stories of the younger siblings who were not there, but it still ends up affecting them. Even though they didn't know those three little boys I'm sure they grew up talking about them and hearing about them and honestly seeing their older brother and parents' devastation. Like they were born into a family that was heartbroken. That's absolutely true. Um, they saw what happened to their oldest brother and to their parents. And they celebrated every year the birthdays of the missing boys. Oh, so they, were, uh, they thought of them. They thought of those brothers as part of the family. Uh, mm-hmm. Just never met them and it was part of the the ongoing family conversation what happened to them what Mm -hmm. can we do to to maybe find out anything about them yeah it was just what they grew up in steeped in absolutely i i can totally see that with never forgetting like as a parent i'm sure they were talking about it every day that is something that would 100% I think every single day you'd cry about it a little you'd think about it a little so I love that they never stopped talking about it I love that they celebrated their son's birthdays and that they you know kept their memory alive even for their younger like their younger siblings that's like beautiful I love that yeah it's um you know it's a part of what makes this Klein family distinctive so they're distinctive not just because three of their boys all Mm -hmm. disappeared in one day. They're distinctive and admirable, I think, because Mm -hmm. um, they withstood this um, tragedy and um, did something with it. They took action on their own. They combated what they thought to be um, uh, 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 the the police's disinterest in the case. Um, and, you know, they sought out experts on their own, uh, did all kinds of things. It, it, so far, none of it has worked. The boys have not been found. Although uh, the, uh, those, three, uh, sheriffs, those two sheriff's deputies I mentioned earlier yeah. on who have taken up the case uh, in the past eight years or so, they have developed new leads. They have found, they have created a list of suspects and next steps. Um, The problem with this case is that because they're deputies in a different county, uh, they don't have any jurisdiction in the city of Minneapolis. And this disappearance happened so long ago now um, that it's it's 70 plus years now that the, the Minneapolis Police Department has no records of its own about the case. And so there is nobody or until recently, there has been nobody to investigate it even as a cold case. Uh, that has changed, though, um, in the past uh, year and a half or so because the sheriff's deputies have gotten a large missing children organization involved to um, fund and organize their own investigation. It's been hindered a lot by COVID, but um, that investigation is out there, and, and that's what makes it still an open case. That's really incredible, and that would be very cool 
for them to, you know, find information on this case that you said is, you know, like 70 years old. I love that they got it funded and people are like still putting in this work and caring about these kids who would now be in their 70s and 80s. I think that's awesome. So with them having no record of the disappearance and like just all that went into it, did you get the full story just from their family and what they went through is are his parents the ones who had to reiterate all the information like you know where they went missing and you know how the leads that they heard about and all of that stuff the interviews I did with Mr. and Mrs. Klein plus the interviews I did with Gordy the older brother Mm -hmm. and then the younger siblings uh, all of that was very important and it's prominent in the book however that was not all I had Mm -hmm. to work from because uh, early on in my research, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request Amazing. with the Minneapolis office, uh, field office of the FBI, just on the off chance they may have something. Um, and um, they did. Mm-hmm. They still had a file, oh, okay. which included the uh, entire Minneapolis, I shouldn't say entire, I don't know, but at least partial a Minneapolis Police Department file on the disappearance as it w- as it existed in 1952, the, f- the year after the boys disappeared. Okay. So um, that was uh, that had a lot of um, important information in it. For instance, through that file, that FBI file, I learned that someone had sent in a ransom note to the Klein family Mm -hmm. uh, in the month following the boys' disappearance, and that's how the FBI got involved because kidnapping is a federal crime. And um, and they acted on it. Uh, They uh, went, uh, uh, Mr. Klein, followed by some um, hidden FBI agents, Mm -hmm. went to the drop-off point where he was instructed to drop off money. But no one ever showed Ugh. up to pick it up. And it's likely that that was a hoax, that uh, that those notes did not come from any actual kidnappers. Um, not surprising because the clients received scores, if not hundreds, of prank letters, calls, other kinds of communication that really made it hard for them in the year or so after their boys disappeared absolutely sickening and I've heard of this so many times in cases we've covered we've talked about this the hoaxes the phone calls and like what makes someone so evil themselves to target a family in devastation uh, to target people who are going through something most of us will never be able to understand and like that is evil in its own right you know yes the person who did this crime or took these kids they are you know they are the number one worst person in this case but following them very closely are those people doing these hoaxes and getting the family's hopes up that like they went out there I'm sure even though they probably thought this is probably fake whatnot I'm sure there's this little sliver of hope when he's going out there to this drop-off point just hoping that his kids are going to show up I that makes me so mad that they received so many things, like you said, that made it very hard for them. Like, that's not okay. It, it is very difficult to understand why people would do that. 
um, in the um, FBI was able to track down one of the hoax callers. It turned out to be a young kid, um, you know, like the the, the kind of, you know uh, the kind of kid who would. Um, make a phone call and then hang up or something like that doing like um, it's, it's, thinking they're funny like a prank call and it's like that is not funny right it's not funny and so there are um evil evil uh characters in this story beyond whoever was responsible for the boys disappearing there there's that group of hoaxers and pranksters and um, inhumane people who did things like that. There were uh, another group of people that I would put in a similar category category are the uh, are the psychics who yes. flooded the clients as well and mm-hmm. offered or tried to sell information that uh, they said would lead them to their boys. Mm-hmm. And um, the clients were desperate, and they did follow up on some of those, and they never led anywhere or, um, and never contributed a shred of evidence to the investigation. Yeah. So I put, I put those psychics and clairvoyants, uh, et cetera, into a similar category. I 1,000% agree. I was just listening listening to a conversation about this specifically just days ago while listening to another podcast that's a true crime podcast it's called morbid they're you know they're pretty big and we haven't covered any cases where i have seen psychics come in but they have and so they were talking about how you know the psychic the psychic in this case comes in they they say all these things like your kids here or your kids buried here and they give these families false hope or they give them devastation some of them will tell the families oh you like your your child died and this is how they died, yet they do not know. Or they say your child's alive, giving them the false hope. And it's just devastating to these people. And it is, they said the exact same thing, that it is evil to do that to these people for your own benefit. I don't know if it's to get their name big, if they're hoping they're going to catch some break on this case, but like, don't use these cases to catch your break as a psychic or, you know, like to get your name out there. Don't use these cases for that, please. Like people should not be giving any information to the police or the families that when they are just guessing, when they actually have, you know, no validity to what they're saying because it is in that same category. I completely agree. It's one of um, the aspects of being a a family member when something like this has happened that I think is really beyond the understanding of the public. You know, the the public can understand grief and can understand horror and emotions like that, but not very well the uh, disappointments of raised hope that gets dropped yeah and um to to even better understand that one of the people i spoke with was um a a woman named patty wetterling Mm -hmm. Uh, her son jacob wetterling was abducted in a a kind of famous case Mm -hmm. also occurring here in minnesota in the late 1980s and and so uh, i talked with her quite a bit about what it was like during all of those decades when she had no idea what had happened to yeah. her son. Her, her son's fate what eventually did become known just in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And um, I should mention that I also um, worked on and uh, contributed to a podcast Mm -hmm. based on my book. Uh, It's called Long Lost. And I teamed up with my local PBS station, Twin Cities PBS, to produce it. And Patty Wetterling's interview is one entire episode of that that podcast. I'm going to listen to that, yes. um, Thank you. Yeah, it was gratifying to work on, and it allowed me to tell the story in a completely different way than I had in the book. Uh Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah, I love that. I'm glad you shared that with us. So, yeah, you talked to her, and she did she just say through all those years she had problems with these kind of people, too? People bringing her false hope and all of that? And also uh, people, um, she did. Um, and also, but also people who ignored the fact that her son was missing, acted like it didn't happen, mm-hmm. or would ask uh, invasive questions. Um, uh, she and her, Patty and her husband uh, had to take some steps to preserve their own privacy. Mm-hmm. It was a really difficult time. Um, for her, and we talked about this in the interview, until she did find out that her son had been murdered. So now she was the mother, not of a missing child, but of a murdered child. Mm -hmm. And the public treats that kind of mother very differently than the mother of a missing child. And Patty had uh, a lot of, as she described, a lot of trouble adjusting not just to the knowledge that her son was dead but that she was a different kind of mother now Mm -hmm. so were they treating her like kinder now that they knew her son was murdered versus when he was missing like they how you said they were kind of ignoring her was it that kind of change or was it the opposite or like how did that go it was complicated mm-hmm. um, because when she was the mother of a missing child, it, not only were her hopes up periodically, but the public's hopes mm-hmm. were up periodically too. So there was a lot more interest. Yeah. Um, a the, the mother of a dead child, the it's a, there's a finality to it. The case is closed. And uh, the attention drops off, not that she wanted most of that attention, but there's right. a, a, uh, f- a finality and almost a cruelty to the end of attention that occurs, which is, which is tough to take, among all the yeah. other things that are tough to take in a situation like that. That makes a lot of sense. Like, the public just loses their interest. Like, oh, we know what happened to him, and they move on. Yet she's stuck there, just like in even more devastation, knowing what happened to her, you know, baby. So, yeah, I can see that. And I was going to ask, did the public with the Klein family, did they ever treat them in a way? A lot of times when children go missing, people will blame the parents, whether they're blaming them for letting them do something that they shouldn't have done, you know, air quotes, or or whether they blame them for like, you know what, I think you had something to do with it. How would your kids go missing? And I think that would be very hard. I've thought about that a lot of times because there are a lot of missing cases of kids, even cases I've covered where you don't know 
whether you know the parents are involved or not but from my point of view don't blame the parents unless there is evidence leading that way because I think that happens a lot where people will take the tiniest thing the look on a mom's face or you know whatnot and say you know what like I think these parents actually might have had something to do with it and I think that would be even more devastating when you're sad and fighting for your child and wanting to know where they are and then kind of being placed with this blame that you don't deserve yeah uh that too is complicated and it happened in a lot of ways in the case of the Kleins. um initially the police uh did uh look at mom and dad as possible suspects although they discarded that uh pretty quickly mm-hmm. because they both had um uh, they both had excuses mom was at home with the older brother and dad was at work when the boys disappeared. Yeah. So um, it came up again uh, when a Minneapolis police officer on his own decided to look at the case uh, in the 1990s. This was around the time that I first wrote about the case. And mm-hmm. uh, he also questioned the parents in that same way. And uh, I wouldn't say they were... Um, uh, angry being asked those kinds of questions, but they were very surprised. Um, mm-hmm. At one point, the the police officer asked Mr. Klein, you know, whether he thought his wife could have anything to do with the boy's disappearance, and he was just dumbfounded by that question yeah. to him. It, it was like not... frustrated with it. <laughs> right. Um, and then in more recent years, the Kleins did get questions like, uh, from maybe well-meaning but um, clueless people, you know, wh- why were you letting your boys go out to play on their own in the park? And that's where context is important. Maybe a lot of parents would not do that today, but in 1951, everyone did. Everyone. There was no, there was no consciousness that that it would be a dangerous thing or that there were abductors or murderers out there or yeah. pedophiles or anyone like that. Um, I think the word pedophile was largely unknown in 1951. Yep. Certainly the term serial killer was completely unknown back then. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of people second-guessed them and they just plowed through it, kept looking. They were just strong and... They knew, you know, they knew in their hearts what was right. And yeah, that that takes a very strong person to not only be dealing with the disappearance, but also, you know, dealing with that pushback and being like, you know what, I'm I don't care what you have to say. I'm looking for my kids. I want them back. So like you said, very normal back then for people to let their kids go out that we I mean, we talked about that earlier, too, like that is just what people did they didn't have the knowledge to know that that could be dangerous and now you know we're all talking about it so we kind of know and yeah they they obviously have no blame for letting their kid go out I'm sure their mother felt guilty enough you know you don't have to put that on somebody they they already feel guilty losing your own kids would be the worst thing so it's like she already you know she doesn't need that um, what's the word? 
um, criticism. Yeah, yeah, criticism and second guessing from other people. So throughout your book, you obviously discuss the disappearance with the family. I think that's very cool. I love that you were able to talk with them, get their permission, like dive deep with them. So I, in our podcast, we cover true crime cases kind of like any other true crime podcast would where, you know, you're telling different stories that are important or need to be heard. I also have tried to work with families when I can. So I've worked with a few families and just different people involved in cases. And those have been the most rewarding. Like you said, you stayed in touch with them for, you know, many years. And that's kind of how I feel. When you are working with a family, you get this whole other side of a story. There's one mom, like I'm still really close with. She's amazing. And like, I just think about her all the time and think about her son. And so I can see how you really got hooked into that story because once a family is able to open up with you and really let you into their pain, it like bonds you in this way. And so I'm glad you're the one who is really bringing this story to light and telling it and you were able to, you know, have the trust of that family. I think that means a lot in a case to hear from someone who was trusted by the people who are the closest to a case. Establishing that kind of relationship with the people I'm writing about is for me uh, one of the biggest rewards of writing about mm-hmm. it. And I, I have done it um, with my other books, too. In m- my book, The Nazi and the Psychiatrist, I became close uh, to the son of the psychiatrist um, uh, who provided me with all the material on his dad. And then when mm-hmm. I wrote The Lobotomist, I interviewed all three of Dr. Walter Freeman's l- living sons, and uh, got wow. to know all of them, um, and uh, they're very different from one another. But they, but for someone like you or me who um, is covering a case in this kind of way, it's a, it's not a comfortable thing to do to approach mm-hmm. a family, um, yeah. ab- about the crime or their loved one who may have done something suspect. Uh, yes, but. But the worst, and you feel like you're a parasite or impinging on their privacy, but they can say no. And the important thing to do is if they say no, respect that. But on the other hand, they may um, want to talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the case of the clients, they were very motivated to talk because they believe that the more that got out there about their son's case, uh, the better the chance of finding out what happened to them. Mm -hmm. And that's very true. And like you said, if they don't want to, they don't want to. And, you know, you move along. And if they do want to, they're usually very open and very grateful. And I do think it is a lot of the time someone asks me, like, how do people take that when you're, you know, trying to talk to them about a case? And I've, I've seen that I think... I think people who have children that are missing or their murder is unsolved or, you know, family members missing unsolved murders, those are really the people who are usually very willing to talk because they want the information out there. Like you said, they felt like the more information is out there, the more likely they're going to find a lead or find this, you know, sliver of information that might help them gain some answers. A lot of times, once a case is completed, 
people might still be willing to talk because they want to talk about their loved ones. Those cases I've noticed, though, people are ready to like move on. They're ready to grieve. They're ready to like be, you know, in their own about it and go forward. Now, with outside of talking to the family, I read that you did discuss, and I think you said it earlier here too, you did discuss some potential leads in the case. Were any of these leads, do any of them seem like they're good leads, like that it really could be something, you know, like an answer to the case? Or were they all kind of rabbit holes that made like they were the only leads but you're not sure that they connect there is one lead that i consider to be a promising lead and that the sheriff's deputies who are investigating also think to be a promising lead and that is um has to do with a neighbor of the kleins Mm -hmm. a man who lived a block over um who and when the boys would go off to the park usually they would often cut across his backyard to get to the Uh park Um, a a few years after the boys disappeared this man um, was accused of sexually abusing another child in the neighborhood and um and he was not uh, he was also uh, not a well-liked person in the neighborhood mm-hmm. and yeah. uh in the days after the boys disappeared he um poured a new concrete floor in his basement and he insisted on doing it himself without the help of uh, some neighbors who offered to help him out oh. and so he he is the suspect that holds the most promise and the investigators who are working on it now have for a long time tried to get into that house uh, to have a look and to use some sounding um, acoustical equipment to see if there are any holes buried under the um, basement floor. Yes. But un- the man died decades ago. Yeah. Unfortunately, the um, people who now own that house will not let anyone in. Uh, to look at it. And since it's not a police matter, there's no warrant that can be produced. Um, And um, my feeling is it it may be an inconvenience for them. But number one, I I think I would want to know for sure if I was living in a house with bodies buried underneath the the same exact thought. Would you Uh, not want to know that? They have the opportunity, which they haven't exercise so far to um, potentially put the client family at ease or at least to answer yeah. some questions and they have haven't seen fit to do it so I think the next step would be um, somehow to get into that basement and see what's under the floor yeah I mean like I wish they would I'm invested in this story now and I can't believe it's you know it's right there not that it would necessarily be the answer, but what if, or it at least crosses off one thing, which narrows down where people are looking, right? So like, it's such a big deal to know if there's anything in that basement, if there's anything to do with the concrete. Interestingly, uh, even though no one has been able to get into that house, um, there are ways to see it uh, because 
That house has been sold a number of times uh, in recent years. And so you can, um, on the various real estate websites, uh, you, where people list house, houses like Zillow and others uh -huh. like that, there are photos of the inside of the house, including the basement. So I was able to determine that the house um, looked pretty rough down there, according to the photos on the uh -huh. real estate website. But then when it was sold more recently, uh, the house had been renovated, the basement had been carpeted, looked much nicer. And, right. um, you know, it could be that the new owners are worried that, um, you know, someone's going to start digging or, um, and wreck their basement. I will help you fix your basement renovation <laughs> if you let them dig there or, you know, even just let them do the sonar. Like, that doesn't, mm -hmm. that's not going to wreck that and whatnot. Not at all. No. And like you said, initially when you said that, I had the exact same thought as you said at first. Would you not want to know that? I would think about it every day, I think. I would wonder if I'm living in a home where this devastation happened, because honestly, I'd probably move. If I found out that yeah. it was, I would, you know, I, I think I would be like, you know what, this house needs to be taken down, whatnot. So I really hope that them or maybe new owners in the future can, you know, kind of be selfless and give the Klein family the answers that they very much deserve to know. Now, in your profile, you mentioned how the true crime book genre is changing. How do you feel that it's changing right now, like in today's world? Well, there has always been, I read a lot of true crime myself mm -hmm. and listen to um, a substantial number of true, true crime podcasts too. Uh -huh. And there's always been a corner of that genre which is about for lack of a better term which is about blood and guts and the yeah. sadistic tendencies of the perpetrator mm -hmm. and um uh, you know i'm sure that serves a purpose for some listeners and some readers mm -hmm. but i um, am more interested in the way it seems to me uh, um, true crime is trending away from that some and being more about motivation, but also um, what life is like for the survivors and those who are still there afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm happy that true crime is going, at least in some part, in that direction. Do you, do you agree? I completely agree. I've seen a lot of stuff about it. If you want to hear about what was done to a victim, you need to know about the victim and where they came from and these things. So I totally agree with you that it is trending more into victim advocacy, which is we're really big about. I tried to title. So I decided to try to title all our episodes with the name of the victims. Sometimes that title gets really long. I put their names in there first. And I, I think that's very important. And I've kind of noticed that with a lot of other true crime podcasts or true crime books that it really is about getting the backstory on that life and then like you said getting the story of the families and what they're going through also what we can do to help prevent these crimes why this story is important to talk about it's a love hate right i am passionate about what i'm talking about because i am passionate about the victims but i hate it because i hate what has happened you know and I think a lot of times people have covered these stories because 
they're interested in what has happened. Yes, it's yes, it is crazy that these things happen, but that shouldn't be our main focus. Like we don't love we ne we do need to pull away from being like we love the goal. We love to hear what happened. Like no, we hate to hear what happened, but we like to know the background story and how this happened and what we can do to prevent it. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I completely agree. I like that you feel that way and that that's kind of where you're at with true crime and your writing, because I think it's really respectful to the families and it's not our place to cover these stories if we're not respectful. Like we don't own these stories and these people's lives if we're not going to be kind to those people. And I think you've put it very well. And uh, it's yes, being kind is important but also trying to understand is important. Yeah. That's the point of, uh, uh, sure, a lot of what you do and also a lot of my writing is to try and understand the motivations and experiences mm -hmm. of people who did in some cases terrible things or yeah. survived terrible things. Um, and that's, uh, that I think is a, an important key to all this because if you understand why someone does something, then that um, carries you along a long way. I love that. And that's why I'm really grateful to have people and experts like you come on here to talk about, you know, your writing and how you got with the family and just kind of to give that perspective. So that was awesome. Like I loved talking to you. Thank you for coming on my show. Before we end out, I want to give you the chance to let people know where they can find they can find you, like everything about you that people can access and, you know. Okay, thank you. There's a few places. Starting place would be my website, which is um, lhi.com, and that's spelled E-L hyphen H-A-I dot com. And at the website, you'll find links to my Twitter account. I'm quite active on Twitter. Um, you can follow me and read my stuff there. I also have links to my other books, in addition to The Lost Brothers, and a lot of the articles that I've recently published. And um, I, I would urge people to check out Long Lost, the podcast, which tells The Lost Brothers story, but in a different way. And, uh, you know, those, those would be the main ways to learn more about me and my work. Awesome. Jack, you were incredible. You were insightful. I will be listening to the podcast. I'm also purchasing the book today because I'm very invested in that. And you told it very well. And the way you talked about it was great. So thank you so much for being on our show today. I, I was really happy to have you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you.